Open your Bibles, please, to Hebrews chapter 11. Hebrews chapter 11. For our text today, we will have four verses here in Hebrews 11. The first three verses and then verse number six. Now, faith is being sure of what we hope for and certain of what we do not see. This is what the ancients were commended for. By faith we understand that the universe was formed at God's command so that what is seen was not made out of what was visible. And then verse number six. Without faith it is impossible to please God because anyone who comes to him must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who earnestly seek him. We've been looking at the issue for some time now. Why is it so hard to believe in today's world? I mentioned last week, and I want to do so again, that I've been helped immensely by James K. Smith's book, How Not to Be Secular. What he does is he makes Charles Taylor's book, which is about 800 pages, makes it accessible. Taylor's book is a secular age. The church, the people of God, are to be marked by trust and belief and faith. We are told without faith it is impossible to please God. But we find ourselves surrounded by an unbelieving culture. And we find ourselves deeply and profoundly affected by that culture. We believe God. We trust him to command only what is right and to promise only what is true. And we demonstrate that faith by obeying him. Yet, as Roger Lundin mentions in his book, Believing Again, Doubt and Faith in the Secular Age, to be a modern believer is to recognize that in the deepest personal sense, belief is optional. Belief is optional, and yet without faith it is impossible to please God. How did we get to this place? And For those who were here last week, if you'll bear with me, I want to review a bit from what we saw last week. It is tempting to think that we are where we are today because of some grand secular conspiracy or movement. Or that there came about a desire that people just wanted to be secular or neutral. It was, in fact, religious movements that sort of kicked open the door that led to a series of things and sort of a domino effect, and that's why we are today. Two factors came into play that led to various reform movements. The first is the tensions, um, the tension of everyday life, but also particularly between the laity and the clergy, if you wish, between where we are now and where we hope to be and eternity. And so within that context, various movements emerged. Within Catholicism, the Protestant movement breaking away from Catholicism, and then you have the Renaissance movement itself. And what we find in all of these is a rejection of this notion of two tiers, that you have sort of the, you know, the clergy and the laity, you have the spiritual people, and then you have the secular people. Uh, by the way, you need the secular people to support you know, the religious people, but still there came this dichotomy and people, I think there was a real unhappiness with this. And so we find this sort of a breaking away from that. And holiness and virtue, which used to belong to those who were in the church, is now seen in everyday life. Everyday life is in fact sanctified and people in their everyday lives are to be disciplined. There is to be a renunciation. It isn't just nuns or monks or priests who live in monasteries. This is to mark every person in everyday life. And then there was the disenchantment 
effect. What we find is that the superstition, the darkness, and it's called the Dark Ages for a particular reason, was sort of stripped away. Spirits, ghosts, all of these things are sort of stripped away. And instead of simply relying on intuition or emotion or even superstitions, we now find that observation and logical analysis begins to take place. So, the world is disenchanted. All of these magical things that supposedly are going on are now pushed aside. The church put forward as spiritual grace. But this had come to be seen as magical. And you have different uh, practices, different rituals that certainly put that forward. The Reformation said, no, we rely on scripture alone. We must return to the authority of the Bible and we must reject all things magical. And so there is a a stripping away of these superstitions, pagan beliefs and fear. But in the process, the baby got thrown out with the bathwater because the idea of a sacred presence in the world became much, much weaker. With these changes came a greater sense of freedom. And the limits that had been set before now have been removed. The world now needs to be reordered. And again, the people who began this movement were Christians. They wanted to do this for the glory of God. If the world is going to be structured, if it's going to be reordered as it should be, then we as God's people should do this. Charles Taylor refers to it as a rage for order. They wanted things to be organized. Again, it's not a secular movement, but a religious movement that sought to make things better. And with enchantment stripped away, creation became something to be studied. And so there came a new interest in the natural world. And in the process, creation became nature. And nature was studied for its own sake. Part of what we saw last Sunday is that to study creation, many people pushed aside the creator. Gieck came across a blog and and showed it to me. Uh, and a video as well. It's by a Filipino musician, Florante Aguilar, who's a great classical musician, uh, guitarist. And the video is based on Don McLean's song, American Pie. Um, not the original that you have on the album, which is about six minutes long. This is actually based on the live performance that he did that is eight minutes and 40 seconds long. And as the blogger notes, it is an elaborate setup that employs a single take which is quite remarkable. I mean, almost nine minutes, it's a single take, which must have required prodigious amount of coordination. It is nice and heartwarming. The song ends at eight minutes and 50 seconds, and then you have a minute of credits. The participants are all listed, and then the sponsors, the platinum sponsors, the gold sponsors, the silver sponsors, the bronze sponsors. But there is one person who is not mentioned at all, who is not listed even once in the video. And that's Don McLean. The blogger writes, you have to remember that each scene and image in the video is a direct representation of Don McLean's innermost thoughts, which he poetically put into words and set to music. It's a little bit like setting War and Peace to movie and then they forgot to mention Tolstoy. The blogger is upset as an artist because he feels that an artist, in fact, should be recognized for his work. Don McLean's American Pie is, in fact, a classical, it's considered a classic in American music. 
And to have this elaborate production and then to fail to mention him seems a bit strange. Well, for me, it is like people studying creation and doing an amazing job of it, I might say, but then pushing aside the creator. Creation becomes nature and merely something to be studied. It doesn't matter what you believe. Just push the, the creator aside. And that which was made by a personal creator now becomes an impersonal object of study. And this impersonal, impersonal or impersonality seems to then permeate all of life. And what we find is reality that is mechanical, fixed, and inert, rather than an order which is organic, personal, and dynamic. We shifted from reality being organic or being an organism to something that is a mechanism. The Christian understanding of the order of creation is rooted in the fact that creation is ordered by a personal God. It is an order that is directed to new creation. It has a purpose. It has an end. It is for the flourishing of all things. It's not just a fixed structure to be studied. And then something else happened. If you push the creator aside, creation is no longer seen as a gift, something to be received with gratitude. No, no. It's simply something for us to study, matter for us to shape as we wish. Side note, last Sunday I wanted to define and hopefully make clear eminent and transcendent and their differences. In the process, however, I think I confused some by my pronunciation. And by the way, I, bear with me. I will never forget, I think I was a sophomore in high school and for some reason our English teacher was gone that day. And so the woman who normally taught the seniors uh, filled in. And she obviously didn't have a lesson plan. And so she said, well, okay, let's talk. When you think about English, what are the problems you think you might have? And I raised my hand foolishly and said, yeah, my pronunciation. And she goes, it's pronunciation. Like, okay, I'm not asking any more questions. Um, There are three words that sound remarkably alike. And they are quite different. The one I was dealing with was imminent. I-M-M-A-N-E-N-T. The second is imminent. And by the way, I looked it up online in the spelling or the pronunciation guide that it gives you. They are identical. And then the third is eminent. Okay. The first word, which is the one I was concerned with, means to be within or near. And it refers to God's relation to creation. It is related to his omnipresence, that God is always within his creation, within the universe, but he is distinct from it. From Jeremiah 23, am I a God nearby, declares the Lord, and not a God far away? Can anyone hide in secret places so that I cannot see him, declares the Lord? Do I not fill heaven and earth, declares the Lord? This is what I was looking for. The second word, by the way, imminent, means something that's about to happen. And that's I-M-I-N-E-N-T. And then eminent, E-M-I-N-E-N-T, means famous or respected within a particular sphere of profession. In this series, no matter how I pronounce it, I'm looking at I-M-M-A-N-E-N-T. That is to say, God's presence in his creation. 
And oftentimes people make a distinction between God's imminence, he's in creation, and God's transcendence. That is, he is beyond or outside of creation as well. He is distinct from all that he has made. He transcends all things. Paul says there is one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. And here he has both the eminence of God as well as the transcendence. The psalmist writes, Let them know that you, whose name is the Lord, that you alone are the Most High over all the earth. Why make such a big deal? Why bother with eminence and transcendence? In part because in the process of stripping away superstition and creation becoming nature, something to be studied only by observation, empirical observation, transcendence was lost or at least ignored. I mentioned this last Sunday, and for those who are here, it might help to hear it again. For those who weren't, I, I want you to hear this. It's from Ken Myers, an article he wrote some time ago. He said, not long ago, while flipping through a, the pages of a prominent evangelical magazine, I noticed an ad for a software package. The application was designed for worship leaders, parenthesis, more, more accurately, worship stage directors or worship production managers, And the ad copy promised that the software would keep track of all sorts of details surrounding the worship experience. Musician schedules, whereabouts of media production elements, licensing fees, and so on. The notion that the production elements of worship would be so complex as to require specialized software was a bit disturbing. More disturbing was the display in the ad which promised, here's one last thing you'll have to pray about. In other words, God need not be bothered concerning the details of worship since we have such powerful technology. How comforting, how marvelous, and how typically modern. We are tempted to live as though God does not exist, or at least as if his existence did not practically matter. We are oftentimes practical atheists. We may say, in line with Hebrews 11, that we are people of faith, But in the practical matters of life, we act as though he does not exist. How did we get here? Again, I ask, how did we get here? Well, in a world that has no transcendence, in which everything is seen as imminent, and by the way, God is gone at this point, the system is closed and and divested of any transcendent sense or anything that goes beyond this reality. The world becomes it that it is the ultimate reality and it is what provides meaning and ultimacy. At the end of the sermon last week, I mentioned briefly four eclipses that are a result of this and in a sense are a domino effect. The first was the eclipse of a good that transcends human flourishing. Before the modern age, and I would say in a Christian worldview, humans and social institutions had a sense of purpose that was eternal. It isn't just about here and now. That is to say, they believe that there was a final judgment, there is the eternal state and the new creation. This meant that human flourishing was not all that there is. The good life was not defined simply by what happens here and now. There was a sense of obligation that went beyond human flourishing. Otherwise, as Paul says in uh, quoting from Isaiah 22, Let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. That is, if there's nothing beyond this life, then then yeah, this is all that there is. Again, Christians were a part of this process. 
in that there was a shrinking of God's purposes. That is to say that when people talked about God's providence or his care for him, uh, for us, it came to be seen only in terms of this reality. And so people like Adam Smith and John Locke, their whole notion of human flourishing had no sense of the eternal, had no sense at all of the new creation of something beyond this life. It was all here, but they still talked about God, that God wants you to succeed. God wants you to do well and God wants you to flourish here and now. And the whole idea of a transcendent God or the transcendent itself simply began to fade. As a result of this, the second eclipse is the eclipse of grace. Because God's providential care, his concern for order is reduced to making us make sure we have enough money in in the bank. That God wants us, in fact, to succeed. He has an order. He has a design. And if you will just sit down and look at things and observe, you will be able to discern by reason what God's plan is. So by reason and discipline, we can, in fact, rise to the challenge and we can live the good life. We can figure this out without assistance, even divine assistance. And so God is seen at as either at the beginning of things, he's the guy who made things, like the watchmaker, and he wound things up, and now he's sort of backed off, or he's going to be there at the end of things to tell us whether or not we did a good job or not with what he had given us. But in between, he is largely absent. No, fu- no function. And on our side, no need for grace. The third eclipse is the eclipse of a sense of mystery. God's providence is no longer inscrutable. It's an open book. As Taylor puts it, his providence consists simply in his plan for us, which we understand. And therefore, mystery is no longer tolerated. By the way, this is part of the lecture that I give um, when I talk about modernity, that in fact, it is during this period that you have the rise of the mystery novels. Because I'm convinced that people do need a sense of mystery in their life, but when they come into the 19th century and everything seems to be figured out, it's like eating junk food and not getting your vitamins, not getting your mystery, and so now you have this mystery supplement. You read this novel, and then you sort of, you know, your hair stands up on your arms and you don't know what's going on. But of course, thoroughly human, thoroughly modern, at the end you find out who did it. So there is no mystery after all. And then the fourth eclipse is eclipse of telos. We lose any idea that God is, in fact, has something for us beyond this. That God is transforming us. God is working in our lives now, not simply for the here and now, but as we look ahead to the new creation. All because people thought they had things figured out. Organization, production, peace, these are seen as the models for human behavior. And the church, knowingly or unknowingly, helped in this process. How did this happen? Interestingly enough, as things began to drift away, it's as though the church saw things slipping from its hands as people were, in fact, leaving the church and losing any sense of transcendence. We find the church at this point seeking to defend the truth or to prove the truth. But as Taylor points out, 
in many ways they, they gave up the game even before they began, because rather than saying there is the transcendent God who is also within creation, they only argued within creation, within a closed system. The great apologetic effort called forth, according to Taylor, barely invoked the saving work of Christ. Nor did it talk about the life of devotion or the life of prayer. Because that, that, how do you prove the existence of God by talking about devotion and prayer or the work of Christ? So rather they spoke of God as the creator. That see, the creation reveals who God is and his providence does as well. And so they tried to prove the truth by means of reason or non-religious reason. And providence became very general. You know, it rains, you know, God takes care of things, he feeds the animals, all these things, very, very general terms. But specific providence, when God answers prayer, miracles as found in scripture, no, these things are done away with. So God becomes bound within the system. He plays a function within the system. A system, by the way, that doesn't need him. Because he, he built it, he wound up the watch, and now things are just going along. We became the agents. We became the people, or well, the agents who could affect change. Not God, but human beings. And so, humanism, we see the theological shift, but there also comes a political shift. And the political shift is... It is no longer about being a good Christian or even a good person, but now it's about being a good citizen. That society is ordered for mutual benefit. And this is done without any claims about God. You don't have to be a Christian to be a citizen. You can, in fact, be a rather good person if you do the things that you're supposed to do. And we end up with civil religion. Natural religion. Polite society made up of good citizens. And God is no longer a part of the picture. Grace seems less essential. But how do we decide or determine if somebody is a good citizen? What does a good citizen do or not do? Well, again, the Christian faith is necessary here because it provides the basis of morality. Stripped of the transcendent, you still have things like the Ten Commandments, the golden rule, love your neighbor. And so, okay, let's jettison God, the transcendent God, but we still need rules for behavior, and the Christian faith provided this. So we are told in the modern nation state that we are to love our neighbor, maybe even our enemy, but we are guided by the assumption that we have the capacity to do that. We ought to be concerned about others. We ought to be altruistic. We have the capacity to achieve this ideal. And so humanism, which in fact had drawn from the Christian faith, reordering of reality, instrumental rationality, that is reason, benevolence and more, at the same time wanted to reject the notion of a transcendent God human flourishing that looks beyond this life to the new creation. And so now, if you think about it, the modern nation state now has 
its own martyrs. We call them heroes. They die in battle for the modern nation state. They don't die for the faith, such as we see in the early church. They die for the modern nation state. They may die for a belief that the modern nation state is sacred, but they now, we no longer have martyrs, if you wish. We now have heroes. God is the creator. Morality or religion is reduced to morality. And we go from a God-centered world to a man-centered reality. The idea that God has anything to do with anything in our lives becomes more and more distasteful until people get into trouble. More and more people wanted to overthrow the idea that God was an active agent intervening in history because this would violate our free will. This would violate who we are as people. But if, in fact, we reject God's personhood and his agency, this means rejecting the fabric of the Christian faith. It revolves in part around the notion of communion. If we depersonalize God, he becomes the watchmaker. Then, in fact, the importance of communion and the community of communion simply are no longer viable. So we should not be surprised that religion in the modern age is decommunioned, de-ritualized, and disembodied. And this is quite remarkable for us as Christians because the gospel is good news centers on the reality that God became flesh. And suddenly, a faith that is based on Christ coming into the world now becomes a faith that involves not dealing with other people. It's a disembodied faith. It's something you feel in your heart, and that's about it. It is in the community of faith that we find the practices of religious life, in which facets of prayer, hope, faith, prayer, faith, hope are woven. And these are all to be personal. But the modern world rests on the impersonal, cosmic order, social order, moral order. And the church, if we are not careful, will fall into the same trap. All the while using biblical language, Christian imagery. I think one of the keys as we struggle with how is, why is it so hard to believe in the modern world and how are we to recover this? One of the keys is humility. The modern world, much less so the postmodern world, claims to understand the universe and how it works. There's a quote that I used from Bill Bryson's book. I don't know if you know it, A Short History of Nearly Everything. He says, the upshot of all this is that we live in a universe whose age we can't quite compute, surrounded by stars whose distances we don't altogether know, filled with matter we can't identify, operating in conformity with physical laws whose properties we don't truly understand. Well, this stands in stark contrast to the attitude of the modern world, in which it thinks it knows almost everything, and if not, is on the verge of doing so. So the modern world has an answer. And the church, rather than saying, no, you don't, the church said, no, we have the answer. And the church, in fact, sought to present an answer as though the church itself knew more than the modern world itself. The big showdown came in 1755 when an earthquake hit Lisbon on All Saints Day, November 1st. Lasting between three and a half and six minutes, 
It resulted in the deaths of between 30 and 50,000 people. Uh, some people say 100,000 people. And in some ways, people call it the, the Holocaust of the 18th century because it fundamentally challenged people's belief systems. How could a good God allow such things to happen? Well, before the earthquake, a book had come out by Gottfried Leibniz on theodicy, in which I have here, he tried to justify God's existence in light of the apparent imperfections of the world. How can God be God? How can he be a good God when so many bad things are happening? And, you know, the church said, we'll tell you how, we'll tell you why. Smith, in his book, says prior to this stance, the condition would have been lament. When thousands of people die, we, we should weep, we should mourn. But now Christians seek to present an answer. The Odyssey, why a good God permits the manifestation of evil. And ultimately this played into the hands of modern thinkers. Because in both camps they're still dealing just with the universe, with the eminent system, the closed system, and nothing more than that. Inscrutability is no longer an option. And Christians are saying, we know why these things happen. Uh, apparently some of them had failed to read the book of Job. Uh, they might have changed their mind. But in part, the problem was, as proud as the modern age has been, the church has followed in its steps, claiming things that it in fact should not claim. Rather than being humble, and saying that we are not God and we do not understand what God is doing oftentimes, the church sought to speak for God and to justify him and to protect him and to defend him from any assault from unbelievers. These answers were insufficient, as you might imagine, and it opened the door for rebellion. People like, if this is the God you worship, I want nothing to do with him. In our text, we are told what faith is. That faith is being sure of what we hope for and certain of what we do not see. By definition, faith looks ahead to what cannot yet be seen. In the rest of the chapter, the author of Hebrews goes on to list Old Testament believers who had faith. There's Abel, Enoch, Noah, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, Moses, Rahab, and more. And in verse number 13, he says, all these people were still living by faith when they died. They did not receive the things promised. They only saw them and welcomed them from a distance. And they admitted that they were aliens and strangers on earth. And then he goes on to talk about those who suffered for their faith. And I love what he writes here about those who suffered. The world was not worthy of them. And then he goes on in verse 39. These were all commended for their faith. Yet none of them received what had been promised. I'm pretty convinced we do not like this. We do not like this definition of faith. We don't like what the writer says about faith. We want what we want and we want it now. We determine the parameters of belief and faith. We decide what faith is. And so we have redefined it in terms of economic prosperity or whatever, um, something beyond what God has in fact promised. It doesn't help that there are those in the church who argue that they have found the secret. 
the secret to economic flourishing or to always being healthy. And there is, we have lost the sense that this is not the end of the story. As Titus pointed out from, for many people, death is the end of the story. That's it. And for us as Christians, if we are people of faith, that can't be. And our faith is not limited to this life. It looks beyond. And like the Old Testament saints who, who died not receiving what had been promised, that's fine. Because they trusted God. They believed God. That he would, in fact, keep his promises. It doesn't help that we live when and where that we do. There are pressures that are brought to, faith, uh, brought to bear on our faith. One of them is privatization. The process by which, in the modern world, we have created a gulf between the public me and the private me. And the public me, that's, that's the world of big institutions. And in many ways, that's not who I really am. It's in the private that I can be who I want to be, and that's who I truly am. That's where my deepest identity is found. The private sphere is where our uniqueness may be found. Let's say if you work for UPS, you have to wear the uniform. But when you get home, you can wear whatever you want. In the public, you have to follow a particular rule, if you wish. But in the private, you can do what you want. And guess what? That's where faith has been put. That's where religion has been put. And sadly enough, for many Christians, that is where their faith is. Not in the day-to-day things, but in the private. As a result, faith is seen as privately engaging, but socially irrelevant. It has nothing to do with everyday life. Modernity holds, let me read this, that religiously held claims about reality are private, not public. They're opinions, not real knowledge. And the Lord willing, in the weeks to come, we will look at the modern view of knowledge in contrast to scripture. Sadly, many Christians submit to this dismissal of theological ideas from public concerns. Faith and reason are typically regarded as mutual strangers, if not enemies. And when we read about faith, it seems something almost impossible for us in today's world. I hope there has been some coherence to this sermon, but I want to close by having you consider something. I think most of us believe that our beliefs shape our practices. That what you believe will, will influence, it will determine what you do. Well, I want you to think about this. That our practices shape our beliefs as well. Our practices shape our beliefs as well. And if, in fact, we have reduced our faith to the private sphere, then it will, in fact, not, it will not affect us in the day-to-day world. It'll be something we do on Sundays when we get together or at home, uh, but not something that affects us day-to-day. The last thing I want from this series is that you will become discouraged or throw up your hands in despair and say, it's all over. No. Um, Faith is a gift from God. 
We are who we are by the grace of God. God is transcendent. These things we need to be reminded of and we need to remember as we live our lives. And our practices are to show this. Not just on Sunday, but every day of the week. I hope that this helps. Let's pray together. Our Father, we live in a world quite different from that of the Apostles. Even quite different from 500 or 1,000 years ago. In many ways, our behaviors, our beliefs have been shaped more by the surrounding culture than we realize. And in some ways, we have come to imagine that we've got things covered. When we get in trouble, we will call on you. And the idea of impersonal forces governing reality really have affected our thinking. In many ways, the world has become depersonalized. We follow principles rather than you as a person, three in one, Father, Son, and Spirit. I've covered a lot of things today. I pray that by your spirit, some would find a place in our hearts, something to think on, meditate on, and to put into practice. We are your people. We want to be people of faith. By your grace, may your spirit do his work in our lives. I thank you that you've gathered us here today. May your spirit and your grace go with us as we leave this place. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.